0: in our series in Philippians, and I've been really excited about this because this is a book that really contains an amazing story about how an ordinary guy named Paul, and we tend to think of him as some kind of super Christian, and certainly he was very gifted by God, but nonetheless he was a person like you and I. This is a guy trying to follow Jesus, his name is Paul, and he finds joy in some incredibly hard circumstances. And this subject is probably very timely for some of us right now, But if it's not relevant for you today, maybe you're like in the midst of great joy right now and you have no challenges in life, know that life is difficult. And a talk like this will have a bearing on your future days. None of us escape trial. This is one of the things we'll see in this book. But we want to be ready for it when it comes. So if you're in the middle of it today, uh, if your New Year's resolutions have already tanked and you're trying to figure out how to make all that stuff work, this will be great for you to think upon. But also know this is something you can kind of store in the databanks of your heart for the future when difficult uh, circumstances do arise. So this series, uh, we're going to look at lots of things, including some of the cultural and the historical aspects of what is going on in Paul's day, because it will really help us to get a better understanding of how God is working in the lives of his people in this ancient city of Philippi. But for today, I want you to know just, just one thing. There's one incredibly important historical fact that you need to know. Paul is writing this letter from a prison cell. Uh, to a church family that he started and deeply loved in the city of Philippi. So he's not in the church office. <clears throat> he is not like at the first century world uh, uh, equivalent of Starbucks, whatever that looked like. He is sitting in a jail cell right now. And he's being imprisoned because of his faithfulness to Jesus's mission. Essentially, he was imprisoned because he was faithfully doing the work of God. And some people had a problem with it. And he's now not just in jail, but he's waiting to find out whether or not he's going to be executed. We know that he does not get executed. He is pardoned of this. But Paul does not know this yet. So he's in jail, awaiting death. That's, That's the likely verdict of what's going to happen to him. So it is very fair to say, and this is a key point that we'll return to throughout this series. It's very fair to say that when Paul is writing this book... He had a lot going on, right? Now think about this. When we get, uh, when we get busy in life, we're inundated in life, or things are challenging, sometimes what happens is the circumstances overwhelm us and we tend to check out. And Paul is in one of these seasons where life totally justified him focusing on himself. He had a big thing in front of him, like possibly execution, but he does not, he does not check out. Rather, the, the first thing we see here is that he lets the circumstances of his life, right? He lets God work in them in such a way that it deepens his love for him, for God. And then he also, one of the great marks of the men and women who serve God faithfully, he doesn't just glean from God. He doesn't just receive joy from God. But he uses his circumstances as an opportunity to encourage and exhort others on in the faith. So it's never just about him in this. What we see is that it's, it's about him to a certain degree. God is pouring into him. But then Paul is pouring into others in a situation that really merited him being, frankly, if I can use the word, slightly selfish. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel, receiving and giving. So God doesn't just use Paul's situation. This is another keynote here. He doesn't just use the situation that he's in. He doesn't give Paul this like, chance to write a book about having a hard time. He actually uses Paul's circumstances. It's Paul's personal life that we will derive some of these truths from. So in no way is this some like, you know, extemporaneous collection of writings on Paul's challenges written from outside the camp. This is Paul writing about what's going on in the middle of his life right now. And that is the beauty of this book. It is deeply human. And in it, Paul teaches us about, uh, about several things. Christian unity is a major theme. The role suffering plays in our life. The, hard to say this, but the beneficial role it plays in our life. He talks about the importance of God's grace and the responsibility that we now have because of it. He even talks about the church's responsibility in the world. None of these are easy things to talk about when we're not in jail awaiting to be executed. But here, he finds this, this amazing way. He digs deep into the power of Jesus and finds this amazing joy and gives us what is one of the most profound teachings in the New Testament about what it means to pursue Christ and the benefits that come out of that, the biggest one being joy. And that's the power that God has buried for us in these living words. That's what's beautiful about the book. There is a power in this. And if we will allow God, I hope you will join me over these next months in asking God to, 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 to have him unleash this in your lives. These joyful words that, that we read about here, they are available to us too, no matter what circumstance we're facing. Whether we are on the mountaintop right now, or the valley, or wherever we will be in two or three weeks. His opening comments teach us that if you're in Jesus, key statement, if you're in Jesus, there is always something to be thankful for. That's the truth of the gospel is you might not see it or feel it, but if you are keenly aware to the way that God is working, there is always something to be thankful for in your life. There is always something to be joyful for no matter where you find yourself in life. And this leads me, by the way, I think that deserves more than just one amen. It is not that cold out like... Can I try that again? Humor me, make me proud today. There is always something to be joyful for, no matter what we are dealing with in life, when we focus on who Jesus is, right? There's something beautiful about that. That is much better. I was about to go get some coffee and push a reset button here, right? So this leads me to the first source of joy, and that's a lot of what we'll look at over these weeks. There are like wellsprings of joy Paul is going to tap into. And I promise they are connected in a very significant way. And the first one he he brings up, he opens the letter with this, right? He says, hey, greetings to you all. And then he goes on to say this. I'll put this in my own words. One of the main sources of joy in our lives should come from knowing that God has invited us to partner with him in the work of his gospel. He gets right to the the root of what he is thankful for. Philippians 1, 3 through 5, I'll reread it. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. So thankfulness leads to joy. We see that here already. And he says, I'm joyful, I'm thankful because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Total side note, this teaching right here is what we derive gospel partnership from at our church. For those of you that are partners, many of you are, this is exactly where this comes from. This, this mutual dedication we have to each other in Jesus to labor uh, committedly here at this local body, in this local body. This is where the theology of that comes from. Some of you might have grown up in paradigms where it's called membership, same idea. But <clears throat> there is something deeply profound about Paul receiving joy from this statement. And the main reason Paul has joy in his heart in a really bad situation, according to him here, it's because of how the gospel took root at Philippi. And so today we know the book of Philippians as, as one of the great epistles of uh, the New Testament. Uh, several reasons this is my favorite book. One of the biggest ones is this is the only book in the New Testament I got to translate entirely out of the Greek and seminary with four friends of mine. It was, uh, it was a brutal class, but it was an amazing class because I had more involvement with this book than any other one in the whole Bible. And so the book is profound because it teaches some incredible things, um, but it also helps us to take away something, okay? I want you to think about this. We look at these books in the Bible oftentimes as if they're sensational, and they are to a certain degree because God is speaking to us through them. But I want you to kind of backtrack a couple of thousand years and think about what this book means at this point in history. Right now, this isn't an epistle in the Bible. The New Testament isn't even fully formed yet. What we have happening here is Paul— A pastor is simply writing a handwritten letter to a church that he started in Philippi, a church that he loves. This is just common correspondence from one man of God to a bunch of other men and women who love God. And what I love about the book of Philippians is that as far as I'm concerned, in my opinion, and I think this is a valid one, it is the church in the New Testament that we are most like. All the churches have certain character in the New Testament, but the Philippian church is the one that I feel our church most resembles. And for several reasons— it is not a perfect church. Obviously, none of them are. None of us claim that. Um, it is not a flashy church. It's not a church that is kind of, you know, known for, for crazy outlandish things. It is not even a famous church. You know, Philippi at this point was, was not even on the radar. Churches like Corinth were known for being like the, the big powerhouses of the day. They were, they were as gospel-centered as they were, were crazy. But Philippi is very different. Its, its famousness, if you will, has nothing to do with external circumstances. It is deeply rooted in a love for Jesus. That's the beauty of the church of Philippi. It was anchored into something incredibly powerful. And because of that, because of their love and affection for Christ, this love and affection that is motivating Paul, God uses it in incredibly powerful ways. I call Philippians or Philippi an impact church because it's doing amazing things, but it's often doing them in unseen ways. It's in some of the nitty-gritty corners of society. Even us today, a lot of our partnerships are in places that we celebrate the fact that God has pushed us into them, but we can't necessarily put them on Facebook because it might alienate the people we care and love. So like Philippi, our church, there's a common ethos here. And Philippi, like us, had its fair share of hardships and successes. But through it all, God blesses the work and the people who are doing it. Not because they were great or awesome, although many of you are. I know a lot of you and love you all deeply. The, the, the reason God is using these people, the reason God is filling them with joy and Paul is because they love him and they're trying to serve him well. Now, a modern day example of what is happening here would be like me, after starting this church, we're, you know, pushing six years old now, uh, I leave and go to another part of the world and start another church. There's no, like, subliminal message in here. I'm not going anywhere. But, but while I'm away and while I'm absent, I write you guys a, a heartfelt letter saying how thankful I am for all of you and for the continued uh, love that you guys are showing Jesus. I'm basically saying your fidelity to Christ has become one of the greatest sources of joy in my life. And so what you have here is this letter written to a church who— the, the, the main point in this is that they had learned, they met Jesus, and they learned to love him really well. And they were trying to serve him in light of that. That's the prerequisite. God just wants your affection. And if you'll give him that, he will do some pretty powerful things through you. He will give you skill where you don't have it. He will give you grace where you need it. And he will give you joy in the places of life where you think you will never find it. Thank you. There's two amens today. You guys are terrible. Let's up with this. <laughs> I would like you to come down and sit with us here. The, our ameners. <clears throat> So the Philippian church is very special to Paul, not because it's necessarily special, but it's because of their faithfulness to Jesus and the work of the gospel. And you can see this in the benevolent tone of his letter. In most of the epistles, especially if you've read Paul's other writings— He is writing to churches with the grace of God in his left hand and the hammer of God in his right. It's like a double whammy. He's like, this is so messed up. This is so messed up, but God loves you. But God loves you, right? Because what happens is he's writing to churches that have really jumped the reservation. They have often slipped into doing things that are now hurting the name of Jesus. But this letter is different. They're not perfect, but this letter does not carry the tone of a hard rebuke. It's more a charge for them to keep true to their first love in Christ. And I want to stop here for a second. Because this theme of loving Jesus well, and obviously being joyful because of it, it is a major one, it's a major theme in the life of our church right now, you know, the parallel. I want you to know that about three months ago, uh, about 20 of our leaders got together, and on a weekly basis, uh, we all began certain periods praying and fasting that every one of us in this church, that God would bring us people and raise up people, many of which you already are, uh, People that have this unbridled desire to love Jesus and serve him passionately in the depths of their heart. So there has been an intentional prayer campaign of which over these next months we're going to invite you into with us for God to basically grab hold of all of us and use us in new and renewed ways. It's beautiful. It's happening kind of invisibly now, but, but it's kind of amazing to see some of the tangible fruit of that coming out of here. And this, I say this to say that Paul's prayer, an ancient one, uh, is, very, is very important, and it's a very comparable prayer that we're praying today, and both matter. This should be a, a perpetual prayer that we pray. And I'll explain to you why. It's super important that we are constantly asking God to help us to never fall out of love with Him. We can build things in the name of Jesus that actually do not reflect Jesus uh, if we lose this first love. And I'll give you an example of this. You know, oftentimes, when I'm around other church leaders, especially in a weekend like this, the past one, This will be a little different because this is a smaller group, so all of us are really—we're different in our own ways, but we're all on the same page in the ways that really matter. Um, When you get into broader circles of Christianity, and certainly pastoring, um, it's very common— to, to, to find out, like, how somebody's church is doing. This is kind of, like, it's unfortunate that most guys start here. Like, you'll say, hey, how's it going? And somebody will just start telling you all the stuff that's happening in, the, in your church. And you're just like, hey, I just want to know if you had, like, kids or a wife or something. Like, just maybe something a little more, you know, personal. But nonetheless, how is your church doing typically means give me all your math and your facts. And that's a, a hard, answer to, uh, hard question to answer because for a lot of people, they have very different pictures in their mind of what they think doing well looks like. And so, for example, there are whole denominations and church planning networks built on this fact that they believe if your church is not the biggest church, then it's not doing well. That's the goal is to be the biggest church around. Nothing wrong with that, um, unless it's not reflecting Jesus, obviously. Others will say things like, and this is probably a little bit more of the mold we're cut from. It's not that we don't want to continue to grow, but we deeply value not just what we retain, but what we send out. So what we're saying is uh, just as viable a mark of doing well is who we release to do other works in the kingdom. This is why we have a passion uh, for church planning and for missional community, right? We see that we see the giving away as just as valuable as retaining. There are some churches who think that they are doing well if their people are the most theologically adept, right? If, if I only speak my sermons in Greek and you all understand them and then you all correct me on my portents issues in my talk afterwards, right? That's doing well. There's lots of, of kind of prerequisites that people will lay out and say this is what it means to do well but for us the way we answer that question is do we have a regular stream of people you know finding and growing in the grace of Jesus that's kind of the the root issue of what we believe matters here because if we can get that right it's very likely that these other things will follow our individual lives in Jesus our church family in Jesus even in the way that we seek joy if we seek the circumstance of joy, disconnected from the grace of the gospel, then we will likely fall in, something that might look, uh, fall in love with something that looks like joy, but it actually isn't. And so here, Paul cuts the nut for us, and he tells us there is one foundational element necessary in the life of every believer and church if you want to do well. And it's a simple one, but it is one that is complicated to live. We've, we have got to get to this place where we can truly say we're doing well because we love Jesus passionately, we desire to grow in his grace, and we want to love others the same way. That is the root of all joy, according to this first passage of Scripture. We'll look at it over these next two weeks. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is this. Here's, the, here's where we're going to come into some tension with, with a statement like this. We do live in a culture, not entirely, but I would say in, in a pretty strong way. It tends to be so focused on what things look like on the outside of life that it becomes very easy to neglect what is actually happening on the inside of life. This is the reason why we find so much hope in circumstances, right? We're we're okay when life is good. We're okay when bank accounts are full, when relationships are stable and well, when our churches are healthy. Whatever your world is, whatever circumstantial wellness is, the reason why these things can inflate us and deflate us so quickly is because at times we place an unhealthy validity on them. I'm not saying it's wrong to be thankful for circumstances. I am saying, though, sometimes we can get so married into the external circumstances that we forget that no matter what the circumstance is, God is still here and present and working in our lives. And so there's a better way to look at circumstances. Rather than finding joy in the circumstance itself, which would have led Paul to a failure point, there's nothing to be happy about regarding his life situation right now. Rather than finding joy in that kind of stuff, we have to find the, the truth and the fact that Jesus is working in our circumstances. True joy is an internal heart attitude. It is not an external feeling. It can manifest itself in a feeling. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But true joy is something that comes deep from within you because Christ has put it in you. And that is why it is unassailable and circumstances cannot rob it. So to get the cart before the horse in this area is dangerous. Because it leads to a life that attempts to find joy in circumstances and not the stability of Jesus. Paul's epistle is very different if he is finding joy in circumstances right now and not in Christ. In fact, it probably isn't an epistle. He's probably huddled in a corner lamenting the fact that he's in jail and wondering if he's going to live. And that's why Paul is able to be joyful in one of the worst circumstances of his life. He isn't as concerned. I'm not saying there weren't real issues. He even talks about being challenged and having anxiety in the back end of the book. He is definitely a human and struggling. But we see here he is trying with all of his might in the grace of Jesus to be less concerned about his circumstance and more concerned about the way God is using his circumstances to draw him into a deeper relationship with him. And in Paul's case, to help others find a deeper relationship in him. In this case, the Philippians are getting the gospel. And God is using them because of it. And I just want to say one thing here. That I, I do believe this is the predominant attitude that many of you have at our church. We, we are not a, a perfect church, but I do believe this posture is one that we're, that many of us are striving for. We are trying to center our lives in Jesus. And I will tell you that that God loves that and honors that. And if that is your desire, he'll help you center in the places you are uncentered. That's, the, that's what God wants for use. That's what God... God expects of us to receive his promises. Oftentimes we want his promises disconnected from from the walk we have with him. And I'm telling you, those two things are married. We have to really try to love Jesus well. And I think what you'll find is that creates an incubator for God's grace to work in our lives. And so what we see here reveals a pretty beautiful truth about how God has historically filled his people with joy. This isn't the only way that he does it, but in the book of Philippians, this is a major way. In a very tangible and deeply spiritual way, Paul is saying that loving Jesus... Living in the power of his gospel and laboring for his gospel connects us to Christ. And and what's amazing about this is to other Christians, past, present, and even future, in an incredibly powerful way. The struggle is ours. We're not alone in it. And God starts the Philippian church under the leadership of the Apostle Paul. Not just so that we could have a great letter to read and pray through and to study, but so that it could be a beacon of joy in the city it was placed in. The church at Philippi, much like God's desire for our church today, is both a receptacle for joy, God wants to pour it out on us, and then God wants to use us to help others experience it. So consider this place as a conduit for joy, and then for Star Wars at 1215, all right? <laughs> That's another joyful conduit for many of you. Some of you guys were dressed up as like a Wookiee for church two weeks ago. I don't know what was going on there. <clears throat> Some counseling or something. <clears throat> Amen, thank you. <laughs> So this reason here is why God invites us to partner with him in the work of the gospel through the community of the local church. And according to Paul, this kind of partnership, this mutually shared love that we have for God and each other and his work, it's one of the main things that God uses to create a spring of joy in our lives. It's fueling Paul right now. And I'll ask one last question here before we move into the second idea I want to talk about. How is it fueling Paul's life? Well, our love for Jesus and partnership in his work binds us to God to each other in a way that makes this... It's the circumstance, if you will, that defines all of the circumstances. Think about this. Our love for God, a pure love for God like this, it will shape the way you see everything else in life. If you miss this, the reverse happens. You, if, the, if the circumstance, whatever it is, is, is what you focus on or dwell on most deeply, then it will start to define your love for God. And for those of us trying to pursue Jesus... I know not all of us are there. Some of us are seeking and exploring. But for those of you in Christ, that creates a a, a problem. Because what winds up happening is your circumstances will then neuter your love for God as opposed to your love for God empowering you to deal with your circumstances and leading you to joy. He's got to be at the top of the food chain. And what I love about Philippians is that Paul doesn't just make these statements and then move on. He gives us, like I said, these these little wellsprings of joy, these little waypoints. He says, okay, so here's the concept of joy. And then here's some practical ways you can actually live in it. And this next one he gives us is incredibly practical. It's deeply rooted um, to, to the verses we just talked about. In Philippians 1, 7 through 8, we read this, or we learn this. We can always have joy, right? The promise is joy, but we can always have joy in our heart because God has given us each other to support each other in life. So here again is another wellspring of joy that is often around us, but some of us don't take advantage of it. Philippians 1, 7 through 8 says this, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Now Paul is, is kind of deepening why he is joyful, the reasons for it anyways. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So something neat happens here. We begin to see Paul's profound love for, for God's people And we start to see God showing Paul his profound love for him through God's people. That's very beautiful. But before we get into the the reality of the beauty, we have to address the challenge with this. Paul's expressing a deep appreciation, right, for the way that he sees God's people in his church. But in our culture, not everybody sees God's people or the church this way. And today we live in a culture where those who are far from God, they often adopt a, a default Uh, hostility and skepticism towards those who, who practice what we would consider to be an organized religion or what they would consider, which in the Christian faith at the top of that list is the church. This is perhaps the most organized form of religion you can get in Christianity. And th- this is interesting because I wish when I, when I kind of talked briefly about this that I was only talking to those who, who are far from God or have legitimate concerns and questions. We all have them, and our church is a, pl- a safe place for people to bring them here. We don't judge this. We try to embrace this and address it. The greater challenge, I think, here is that it is not only those who are uh, far from God that embrace this idea. There are lots of people who who deeply claim to love Jesus— who claim this idea. In other words, they're saying like, listen, I do love Jesus. I just do not love any of the other people that claim to love Jesus. And that's a problem. And I will explain to you why. Even though, uh, even though being in relationship with other Christians can be hard at times, the truth is, is every relationship, the ones that matter most to us can be challenging. Our wives are... Our husbands, our children, right? No, the deeper the level of love and relationship, the greater the reward and beauty of the relationship, but also the, the the higher the risk of the relationship because you're intimate with people, you're close with them. The Christian faith is is very similar. It can be hard to be in relationship with other Christians at times because maybe not even hard in the bad way. They might, you know, talk to you about something or they might care about you in a way that they bring something up that that is maybe feels offensive, providing they're not being offensive. Obviously, without encouraging that. But it might be offensive to your heart because God is trying to speak to you through this. What, what I, what I want to say is, is you can never fully experience Jesus's joy if you are disconnected from God's people because we are one of the main conduits for God's joy. Now, to be fair, no scholar or student of church history can fully disagree with the, skepti- the skepticism sentiment. This is why we want to have a lot of grace here. There have been periods in history and recently where you do have Christians, you know, public and private, who do hurt the name of Jesus. They do things and they make mistakes and and people get deeply hurt. And so I'm not trying to deny that. I'm just trying to say that not everybody is like that. And so we should avoid these types of statements, the all-Christian types of statements. They're accusations and they really have no place in any reasonable dialogue and any discourse in public society. Although we, should, we, should rec- we have to recognize that in all places of society, people can exhibit poor behavior. And so I'm not excusing this. I am just saying that this is more of a reality of the brokenness of people than it is solely a church issue. So I want to unpack this idea for a moment and give you what I think is perhaps the, the most powerful sentiment that best reflects this idea. And it's given to us by a very famous person named Gandhi, who most of you uh, have heard of, I'm sure. And when speaking of Christianity, he said this, the quote will be behind me. He said, I like your Christ, uh, but I do not like your Christians because they are so unlike Christ. Now, this is kind of like the nut of this idea that we're talking about today. It is a common sentiment. Not everybody adheres to it, but many do. And it is frequently used to discredit organized religion. And again, I'll just re-kind of surface this. In Christianity, that's the church. So the major problem with this sentiment is that it uses the life of Jesus in a way that, that Jesus refuses to use his own life. So you basically have a guy trying to use Jesus in a way that Jesus says, you cannot use me like this. And I'll explain why. God never uses his son's life as some sort of supreme measuring stick by which he says, look, if you want to love me, then you must perfectly replicate my son's morality. The word doesn't become flesh to tell us, like, you have to do everything I do. And then if you can do all that, then God will love you. That doesn't mean we don't have standards or expectations. It's just saying that that is not the root of the nature of our gospel. And if that were the case, we would all be in trouble. Because what that does is it reduces Jesus to a completely moral example. And we didn't need, humanity anyways, another example of how to live. What we needed was a Savior, somebody who could, who could restore the name of our church, who could redeem us, right, right? Jesus' role is much more than just an example. He is the redemption of humanity. And to embrace this idea uh, is is a problem because it starts to make Jesus something he's not. He is the greatest example, but he's much more than that. So rather, Jesus uses his life to say, listen, uh, I know, and because I know everything, and because my father knows everything, we all know that you will never live up to our standards because of sin. My father in heaven has always known this. But unlike Gandhi, my father in heaven still offers you his love, And that is why we call this grace in the Christian faith. He says, the reason my father has sent me is to actually be the standard for you. Not just to call you to it, but to to show you that you can never live up to it so that I will live for you and die in your stead. The perfect holiness and the righteousness that you could never achieve on your own to be with my father in heaven. He says, I'm going to be that for you so you can be with my father in heaven. And the end result of this is that you will no longer be bound by the chains of moralism. You will be freed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And so to believe like Gandhi did, or worse, and I think this is worse, to be a professing Christian who then jettisons the joy of the church family by claiming this sentiment and then uses the perfect life of Jesus to back the sentiment up, it's really, really, really bad. Because this person denigrates the very heart of the source of all joy in our lives that we just gave you know foundational thanks for, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's thankful the gospel is working in their lives. And this is an attitude that removes the gospel from the faith. Because this is the type of person who pits the Jesus of Christianity against his people, against his church, against his truly beloved, broken, imperfect people, which, by the way, Jesus died for. And so there's something problematic about this. Not only only is it fundamentally wrong in the Christian faith, it will rob us of one of the most substantial sources of joy God gives us, us. And so Paul shows us you're not fully getting the gospel of grace if you think you can love Jesus without loving his people. Scripture says there's something a little bit off. If you can say in one breath, I love you, Jesus, but I don't love anything else that you're working in. Because to say, I love you, Jesus, think about this, it means in a very heart-deep way, you're supposed to look more and more like him every day, right? This is the concept of sanctification. It's not perfect, it's sloppy and messy, but we pray that at the end of our days we are more like Christ than, when, than we were when we started following him. We're being changed by the power of his gospel. And logically speaking, think about this. If Jesus says, I love the church, there are myriad of places where he talks about his profound love for us, and obviously his actions on the cross back that up. And he says, I love the faulty people that make her up. If Paul says, right now I'm in a really bad spot, but I'm deriving great joy from God's people, I so recognize that, that your love for me and my love for you is getting me through this rough day. If all of these people recognize this, and they also recognize in Paul's case that he's part of the church. He's not just a guy writing to the church. He is part of the church, like you and I. And then all of a sudden we go the Gandhi way. It really appears that something is out of whack. And so to close this little idea, I'll say this. If, if Jesus were responding to this sentiment, I suspect his re- reply would have went something like this. Addressing Gandhi or, or this type of a Christian he would probably say, you can absolutely like me believing like this. Like you, could, you can be like Gandhi. You can like Christ. You can say, I really think you're a great example, and I think you're, you're a wonderful thing for people to look up to. But I think understanding Jesus for who he says he is, Jesus would say something along the lines of, you can't fully believe in me believing that way, though. Because all these people you claim to dislike, all these people you're talking about, I love them very deeply. And one of the greatest evidences of my love in your life and our lives is when we love those other people, too not just when it's easy but also when it's difficult. That is that is even great that's grace in relationship. And so this idea here clearly communicates one thing to us. You'll never fully experience how to live in the joy of Jesus if and show it to others if you disconnect yourself from other people on the same joy journey. Our lives are meant to be wellsprings fueling each other, wetting our appetites with joy. Because other people are looking for that same promised peace you are. And that's why we're better together when we believe this. And I shared this story with you four years ago. And I know you remember all my stories. You write them down and meditate on them daily. But just in case you've forgotten this one, I want to share this one with you. Uh, This uh, this book is very important to me on a number of levels. And I'll share with you another reason. This is a truth that I learned firsthand, and I am very thankful for the fact that in God's grace he showed me this truth firsthand. Um, those of you who know me and I've had conversation with, um, this is roughly my 17th year pastoring in the local church. It's been in other forms and varieties, but but nonetheless, I have been pastoring God's church for, for almost two decades. And at the end of year eight, I came, this isn't the first and the only one, but I came to what I would consider to be a pretty significant uh, faith crisis in my life. Uh, in a nutshell, I was becoming pastor who adopted the Gandhi theology I was getting to that place where I was over it and fed up with people and I was on the verge of wanting to to have nothing to do with the church and you can even ask my wife this I was thinking about all these other like career options and the one that made a lot of sense to me before coming to Florida anyways was was praying about teaching history on a university level I thought that would have been great go back to school get another degree and do that and so I was at the place of looking for something else to do but I can tell you um, in my heart of hearts I was ready to give up I was over it but in the core of my being, I just couldn't. And this is one of the realities of the grace of God, is that we have to pursue and follow Jesus well. But there are days when we cannot pursue or follow Jesus well. And we'll get to this in future parts of the book. But it is in those instances, if we will permit God, he will give us strength and joy and peace and hope and promises in places of life where we don't think we can find that stuff anymore. What I'm telling you is about what, what is about to happen in my story anyways, was not something I fabricated. It was, com- it was a completely imputed grace that God put in me. There was something deep within me that just wouldn't let me go. Even though I really wanted to, it was my desire to eject. And I know now, because I have years to look back on this, but in the moment, this was fuzzy. I know now that, some, that something was, was Jesus. It was his hand. And I'd like to believe that it was clenched tightly around my heart. I know that it was the promises of the Holy Spirit to intercede for us and to be for us on our behalf, the things we cannot be when we so desire them, but just don't have the strength to make it happen. It was God who was connecting me to his people in a season where I was wondering why I was connected to God's people. And over time, God healed my heart in many ways. This is most of our story, right? We have bad, week season, and in God's goodness and in his grace, he works and he restores us. But what was interesting about this is I feel like God gave me a taste of my own medicine, and it was a good one. God healed my heart in a lot of ways, but there is one particular way that I want to share with you today. And there's a great irony in this. Uh, I think the most profound way God restored my love for him and his church, it was, through, it was through the people of his church. It was through men and women just like you. It's through weekends like last weekend where I'm around other guys and girls that, that love Christ and have, have similar struggles. They're just challenged by stuff. It was by being around other people who were truly trying to love God. It was in those places that I recognized there was an openness to talk about this stuff. There was a willingness to share this stuff. And it was, it was also in those places that I recognized I was not alone in my feelings, there were other people who were in the same place in their journey. Some of them were ahead of it of where I was at. Some of them were behind it. Some of them were in the middle of it. But nonetheless, it was great to hear that, that God was working in ways. And it was beautiful because I had to get out of my own little world and ask God to help me see the bigger story of what he was doing. This is essentially what's happening with Paul. He gets out of the prison cell. And he starts reminding himself and God's people that God is present and working everywhere. He steps out of his circumstance and into the bigger narrative of God. And I'm telling you, on the days when life is hard, on the days when you are depressed or struggling, on the days when you're ready to throw in the towel and you're wondering if God is still real, there are lots of ways that God will show you his joy or give you his joy. But one of the best ways to get those questions answered or to have that joy tank refilled is to be around other people who are on the same journey with you. It's to be around other people and to hear from them the ways that God is and has worked in their lives. It's by being around people who you know love you enough to carry your burden on the day you cannot carry your burden because we all have those days. And so I'm happy to say my story is not an isolated one. There are lots of people, some of you sitting here today, you're where you're at right now because, because you have experienced this type of love and joy I'm talking about. You have been physically touched by the invisible joy of Jesus through the people of God. They weren't all like Gandhi's folks. They were people that really loved you and cared for you in profound ways. And so the joyful, persevering gospel confidence we see here from Paul, it stems from something he is not just writing about, but it is something he is personally experiencing in verses 3 through 8. Remember, this is not a story about God. This is a story about how a guy is following God. In the midst of dire circumstances... Paul is an evidence that joy can be found in the worst of circumstances. When you stop trusting in the circumstance of the world as a source of joy, the main one anyways, and you anchor your heart to Jesus, his promises, and according to this, and he'll go into more about this as in the weeks that follow, the, the people of God. And so in light of these truths this morning, I'll leave you with this. Jesus asks you a very simple question. Uh, most of Jesus' questions are simple. You know, hey, do you want to follow me? Seems pretty simple. But the implications of actually doing that are pretty profound. So don't let the simplicity of this question um, denigrate the reality of the significance of how you answer it. It's a simple question with a profound implication. Are you living in the promised joy of Jesus or or are you without it? Because you really only have two options when it comes to joy, especially if you're in Christ. You can derive joy from him and let him use his approved vessels for it to we talked about today where, you know, loving him well and loving God's people while letting them love you. Or you can hope that you can find joy in some other extemporaneous and likely shifting circumstance. You can look to that right now. But the truth is that the reality is if you're already distressed in your heart from looking to it, you probably shouldn't look to it anymore. It'll just create further distress. Circumstances are shifty. I've said this before. They are, they are elusive gods who promise us much and often deliver nothing. Sometimes they, they debit from our heart. They don't deposit into it. So ask yourself... Are you a Christian who constantly hears about the promise of God's joy, but you've yet to experience it? This is certainly not the first time we've talked about joy in this room. Many of you have been Christians for some time, and you've heard this word a lot. Maybe you've read about it. You've heard it, but you've yet to believe it deeply enough to experience it, to experience the peace, the rest, and the joy that, that God promises to you. If this is you, maybe it's time to ask yourself whether or not it's time to start doubting doubt and to start praying that God would open your eyes to the reality of who his Holy Spirit is that you would start praying that God would give you the the fortitude to deal with your circumstances, whether it is today or tomorrow, and that he would give you the ability to do that by fixing your eyes towards the glory of God, the the power of our Heavenly Father. Make that the circumstance that defines your earthly circumstances. The short story here is it's time to ask God not to give you joy necessarily, but what has dammed up the well of joy he's already put in your heart, because joy is a promise. It isn't something you get. It's something that is already in you, and you just have to figure out what's clogging it up maybe you're here still exploring the promises of the gospel. Or you've not believed anything about the, the promises that Jesus has made to you. But maybe you're interested or intrigued. To you, there is a different question. The question really is, what are you waiting for? Um, if the beauty of Jesus intrigues you, if the joy of Jesus and the experience of personal life in Paul here, if it connects with your heart and the love that comes with that, the promises, maybe it's time to ask, what is, what is keeping you from thinking about that? What is the, what is the dam stopping you from, from taking a next step with Jesus, no matter what that is? Ask yourself if it's time to start seeing Jesus for who he is, not for the ways that people see him, the case in point today, Gandhi, to take Jesus for who he is. Maybe give your life to him today. Believe. If you're in Jesus, believe more deeply. Ask yourself when it comes to the promise of Jesus' joy and the ways that he gives it to us. This is a question we'll introduce today. We say it a lot, but I want you to think about this beginning today, and I hope you will meditate upon it for the rest of our time in the book of Philippians. What is Jesus saying to you about how you see, understand, and experience his joy? And what are you going to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for, for, again, a story that is an evidence of the way you work, but it is an evidence of the way you work amongst people just like us. This is one of the greatest, I think one of the greatest truths of scripture is that you are working amongst men and women, different seasons of life, different circumstances, different trials, but nonetheless, they are people, flesh and blood, just like you and I. And so I pray, God, that as we embark on this journey of joy, as we think through some of this stuff, that you would truly help us to know who you are, to know uh, the depths of the riches of your glory and your goodness. I pray, Lord, that that the name of Jesus would not just be a word that we have on the the top of our, our heads. It would be something that deeply resonates in our soul and in the bottom of our heart. I pray, Lord, that this day we would truly focus on you that you would bind from our minds or our hearts anything keeping us from directly hearing from you now. May these next moments we have in contemplation and reflection, may they be your moments with us. And I pray you would speak to us in powerful and in mighty ways as we move into response time. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.